Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. And we are newly and fully vaccinated. I, 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 I've never met you I, I'm, I'm in person, and I had no idea what you looked I like. I expected so you to be shorter. <laughs> we are newly and fully vaccinated and indoors, in studio, in person, and inspired to be so blessed. Our guest coming up is the brilliant and trailblazing comedian Elaine Boozler. According to her website, which you can find on the Internet, Elaine started doing comedy in New York City in 1973 and has been on everything you have ever seen. So if you say to her, didn't I see you on? The answer is yes. Yes, you did. But first, Fritz and I have curated for you some fine media selectables. What have you got for us All today? right, we, first of all, I'm going to do a feature film on Amazon Prime. It's Without Remorse. This is a Tom Clancy story. And if you're a fan, it's the origin story of John Clark, who was one of the most popular characters in the Jack Ryan series. Stars Michael B. Jordan playing an elite Navy SEAL who discovers an international conspiracy while seeking justice for his murdered pregnant wife. Directed by Stefano Salima, who directed Sicario, Day of the Soldado. Sicario movies are great action movies, as is this one. Michael B. Jordan does all of his own stunts in this, and there are many hair-raising stunts. Great bad guys in this movie, or at least questionable guys, mm. including Guy Pierce as Secretary Clay, a duplicitous politician. What a surprise. And Jamie Bell, who plays Robert Ritter, who's an operative you're never quite sure about. Jamie Bell got famous playing Billy Elliot. He's a wonderful British actor. Oh, yes. He, he's not still a kid. No, he's oh, not. These kids, you look away and they grow up and there they go. And he's one of these guys who's miraculously able to bury that English accent. He plays a great... Any pirouetting in the film at all? <laughs> no, oh. he did, didn't do it's that. It's a disappointment. But I got to tell you, there's some badass women in this film, including Jodie Turner-Smith. You might know her from the Queen and Slim series. She broke barriers in this movie because she plays Michael B. Jordan's superior as a SEAL lieutenant commander. It's a great cast, fun ride, Nobody does military slash government roller coaster rides like Tom Clancy. It's a great film. Good escapist. All right, excellent. Well, I've had a very busy week, Fritz. Do you know why? No. I've been reading Beautiful Things by Hunter Biden. Oh, wow. You think that movie was a ride? This is a ride. Okay, so this book is astoundingly raw and heartbreakingly candid. It's a soulful, harrowing, funny, and candid answer to the Republican battle cry query Where's Hunter? <laughs> Hunter has been in some disturbing locations. You should first know that Hunter Biden is a lawyer and an artist, a graduate of Georgetown University and Yale Law School. He has worked as an advocate on behalf of Jesuit universities and served on numerous corporate and nonprofit boards, including as vice chairman of Amtrak and chairman of the Board of World Food Program USA. When he was two years old, Hunter Biden was badly injured in a car accident that killed his mother and his baby sister. In 2015, he suffered the devastating loss of his beloved big brother, Bo, who died of brain cancer at the age of 46. These hardships were compounded by the collapse of his marriage and a years-long battle with drug and alcohol addiction. Rudderless, without Bo, Hunter recounts his descent into the dark and seedy recesses of substance abuse and his torturous path back to sobriety. It's interesting to note that while Republicans were accusing him of embezzling money from corrupt Ukrainians, he was actually blowing money on crack-fueled odysseys into oblivion. I blame Rudy for the intel fail. 
This book is a critical look at the grip of addiction and how it will often claim the brightest and most sensitive among us. The reviews on Amazon are worth a look too. So they're either five stars, like completely five stars from the verified purchasers or one star from people who have not bought or read the book. And they write things like, if you're low on toilet paper, this is a great book. Or if you want to become a drugged addict or adulter, it does have some helpful tips. Yeah, it's a split decision on Hunter. I mean, without Hunter Biden, the Republicans would have nothing to whine about. Tucker Carlson wouldn't have a show. That's all they do is whine about him. Yeah, he's like this straw man who is really insignificant in the overall scheme. Well, he he's just the modern version of Hillary's emails. And it, it just exactly. didn't. Right. <laughs> and it didn't pan out the way they had hoped it would. No, I agree. Good selection. So I'm going to talk about Vice Investigations. This is on Hulu. It started on HBO, and I think they second streamed them on Hulu. I like good investigative journalism. And I look at Vice as 60 Minutes with an Edge, or Next Generation 60 Minutes. A good sample episode, if you've never seen it, is Season 1, Episode 8, which is up right now. It's called Gun Culture 2.0. Ouch. Gun Culture uh, 1.0 talked about hunting and the rural idea of owning firearms. Gun Culture 2.0 moves to suburban and urban gun owners, and they concentrate on the right to concealed carry. Vice doesn't take sides. Correspondent Josh Hurst is really just in a fact-finding mission. But if you're a fan of more gun control, this is eye-opening and it's disturbing. Because here's the irony. In the United States, statistics say that more people are in favor of reasonable gun legislation right now, but in many states, laws are becoming more and more lenient. Forty years ago, it was almost impossible for you to see somebody carrying a gun down the street in public. Now, the opposite is happening. As a matter of fact, in Oklahoma, they just passed a permitless carry law, meaning you don't even need a permit to carry a gun. People walk around carrying a rifle at the Walmart. Vice covers a wide range of subjects in their current season, from Russia's war on hip-hop music to the raging fires in the Amazon jungle. It's well-produced. It's edgy journalism. I love it. Awesome. I, I will check that out. So have you heard of Atlantic Crossing, Fritzy? No. Atlantic Crossing, not to be confused with Animal Crossing, which is a <laughs> game on the Nintendo Switch. Atlantic Crossing has far fewer talking cows. Just so you don't make a, a purchase error. Okay, so this is a true story. Oh, it's actually inspired by a true story of a friendship forged in wartime. Atlantic Crossing is on PBS. It explores politics and ambition as Norway's crown princess Martha flees to America for safety as her country is invaded by the Nazis. She is taken under wing by FDR, who develops a bit of a crush on the adorable Nordic princess. A restrained and shy Princess Martha quickly finds herself evolving into a powerful advocate for her country and grappling with the moral dilemma presented when she recognizes that she could leverage FDR's feelings in a desperate effort to protect her homeland. Kyle MacLachlan stars as FDR, Sophia Helen as Princess Martha, and Tobias Santelman as Prince Olav. And they speak a lot of Norwegian in there. Is this a multi-part series? Yeah, it's one of those PBS multi-part is it masterpiece theater? I haven't even heard. It's of it. brand new. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. yeah. It's just they're they're releasing. It's like a masterpiece theater thing, I think, and they're releasing one per week, and it's really good. Wow! If you're a well, uh, if you're a history that. fan, as am I. Anything with Brits and PBS is always quality work. You can't fail. So, 
We're going to introduce our guest. We're so excited about Elaine Boozler. She asked to be introduced as one of the greatest comedians. And don't read her whole bio because it does go on and on. She's been at this. She's good. She's just a superstar. She's a trailblazer, as I said earlier. She's that female comedian that everyone has heard of. And everyone saw open for America, you know, at some point in the 70s. Am I right about that, Elaine? Everyone saw you open for some big rock band, right? Some big music act. But I didn't say greatest. I said most popular. (laughs) One of the most popular. Well, I think I just happened to put in some of my own interpretation, which is that that you are the greatest. I'm going to say a little bit about you. you. Comedian writer. I'll I'll be back. All right. So, yeah. (laughs) Comedian writer, animal activist. Elaine Boozler was named one of Comedy Central's greatest 100 stand-up comedians of all time, dubbed by Rolling Stone Magazine, the first lady of stand-up comedy, and named one of their 50 best stand-up comics of all time. And here she is among us. And you two go back how far, Fritz Well, she had already achieved a little success when I was fighting my way up out of, you know, open mics into getting paid spots at the comedy store. But she was legendary in the glass ceilings, several that she broke for Lady Comics. And I, I really, I'm so interested to hear her talk about this. There was so much sexism in early stand-up because nobody thought women had the ability to do stand-up as well as men, particularly the owners of some of these local clubs. And she had to fight tooth and nail and worked her way up. So Elaine, talk about those early days. I'm going to say early to mid-70s to early 80s, until there was more parody in the stand-up world, and, and, and how hard it was, and what, what, what the latter was like. You, you, you weren't getting any spots, then you got belly room spots, and then I think you, I, I think this legend is true, you were the one that uh, was one of the first to get a spot in the main room at the store. Am I right about that? Well, here's first of all, we have to take care of business because we're coming out of the pandemic. And first things first, if we're on Zoom, there are two things that are necessary. Oh, yay. (laughs) Very nice. So answer your question. (laughs) It has to be books and flowers, right? That's Zoom. Books, flowers. That's my background. Here we go. But I'm holding them. I'm going to get tired. You just Um, got owned, Claire McCaskill. (laughs) <laughs> no, everyone is books and flowers. Everyone. And I, I haven't been doing any Zoom at all. I finally did one last week and I did it from my husband's uh, office in the house. And people said, are you kidnapped? Are you in a bunker? <laughs> it was so bare and so bare bones. I felt terrible. So I'm in my dining room. It's um, very I warm. Watched- it's cozy. Oh, okay. You. Tell us yes. what you've seen. Yes. I watched episode one of Atlanta Crossing last night. Isn't it great? It was- wonderful and the lead actress who plays the the queen of denmark there um norway she's in one of my favorite series of all time that people should stream which is called the bridge uh, it's actually called broen b-r-o-e-n with the two dots it's such a brilliant show she is brilliant in it and they remade it in england and called it the tunnel what? And they wow. really, because the, the Norway one, uh, a murder takes place right on the border, on a bridge. Norway and uh, who did I, I failed, uh, you know, I failed school. So is it Norway and Sweden? Anyway, right on the line. So they have to work together. The bridge is France and England and they have to work together. Okay. I mean, the tunnel. So it, it brilliant shows and she's great. She's really awesome. My other favorite, anybody seen Dairy Girls? No. no. Okay, it's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. The funniest <laughs> show you will ever see. Dairy Girls, it's uh, from Ireland, it's great. And Rake, 
Australian is great. I read television. I don't uh, watch it. All I do is read subtitles. I love That's that. my favorite stuff. Do so. you get do you get okay. the acorn? I don't think we have acorn. Oh, you're going to love only acorn. We're up to like six thousand dollars a month in streaming services. <laughs> no, so, <laughs> I understand. Acorn. acorn. Acorn is British and Australian. And oh, I get BritBox. We have BritBox. Oh, you have, oh, so you probably Walt okay. Fish. And on yeah. Acorn, there's a lot of murders that have to be solved. A lot of murders. Well, Every I am small all, town. I'm zombie and murder girl. Okay. I am into dystopia. That is my life. <laughs> yes, I I read your blog post, and could you kind of elucidate for us one of your yes. issues with dystopian? Okay. Okay, so it started with me with, um, and you'll like this, Fritz, because. Uh, it, the uh, weather changed constantly when we were watching Lost. It was always the black cloud coming in. And by the way, I am boycotting L.A. weather because you're not our guy anymore. I miss oh. you so much every night. L.A. weather so, has been canceled. What a nice L.A. weather has been canceled. We all miss you so much. God That's why you. I said I do this. I never do many podcasts, but I, I missed you. I needed to well, see you. I appreciate that. People have finally realized they could have just looked on their phone the whole time. What? And I didn't have to Either. Wait a minute. I have a better one. Looked on their phone. Have you looked out the window? No, seriously. <laughs> but, uh, Argus Hamilton my... said, when I got this job, Argus Hamilton said, yes, his title is vice president of looking out the window. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> Just you know, wet no a finger. Weather, no weather person has ever said the one thing we want to hear, which is take a sweater. <laughs> take yeah. a sweater. Uh, you yeah. never know. Take a sweater. Things change. That's all we want to hear. So no one ever said it. Be prepared. But, I think the Boy Scouts sort of teach you that. That's be prepared. Yeah. You know, what they really mean is if it was a Jewish Boy Scout organization, they would say, take a sweater. <laughs> but they're not Jewish, so they say, be prepared. Which <laughs> Jews know means yeah. take a sweater. Yeah. So, but I mean, a sweater uh, can be used as a tourniquet in a pinch. You know, I loved Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I always take a towel. Okay. You just, wherever you go, you need a towel. <laughs> a towel. You could do a heart transplant. If it's you have utilitarian. <laughs> you need a towel. That's okay, it. so your blog post about dystopian. Okay, it started with Lost. Fiction. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at these people on Lost, and you know, kudos, no makeup. They're on an island. You know, it, they look really natural. And uh, and then the women, every time they raise their arm, who's that? You know, people always walk out on me. I That's can't believe That's just no Thomas. Problem. He's going to be around. Walking Get used to out while I'm on. You know, I feel like we're back to normal. <laughs> no, he's, 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 adjusting, he's adjusting your shot, and he's very handsome. He's very handsome, and he, and he left. It's, I feel like I'm back. No, he's Texas. just behind the camera. Here he comes again. Get ready. There you go. There hey. he is. Yeah, it's just Thomas. Okay, so you're anyway, watching. You're I'm watching. watching and Lost. I buy into it, and then the women are in sleeveless shirts, and they raise their arms, and they just be become completely clean-shaven on an island with no razors. No and I figure, what, did they find a good clamshell? I mean, how do they have no hair on their bodies? And I'm sorry, do you have a dog in the studio? Because <laughs> <No. laughs> I don't have dogs. We so I don't know, know you too well. <laughs> And now I'm watching all the zombies and the zombie apocalypse and all the women have shaved pits. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it completely snaps me out of the reality of the mm -hmm. show. I go anywhere with you. Yes, the zombies happened. Yes, they need to eat you to stay alive. Yes, the world ended on casual Friday. That's why they're all wearing jeans. <laughs> I buy all of it and they're full of dirt and matted and they haven't washed their hair and I go, they really are into this. They did it great. And then their pits.
this? The women are clean shaven. And I go, I'm not buying it. And I change the channel. <laughs> Guys, if you really want us to buy in, and you know why? This is why we need more women producers and women behind the camera. Not for equality, just for reality. Women would know, sorry, you can't shave for this show. No, <laughs> smooth pits would not be a priority in a zombie apocalypse. No, they would. And can I have another issue along those lines, Elaine? And that is that ladies on TV wear their bra to bed. Does anyone <laughs> they else? They wear know? their bra for sex when they're, they're not getting paid enough for the nude scene. They all have their bras on during sex. I find it stunning. Stunning. But, but they go to bed and they've got their night clothes on and their boobs are just so awake. And Well, it's not bras. There are actually wranglers, uh, breast wranglers, who are <laughs> under them in the bed and they hold them up. Because it's a job here. I don't know if you know, it's a union job. So, well, it's you know. much, it's much, much coveted from what I understand. It's but, very hard. To, it's actually people are grandfathered in. They are. <laughs> <laughs> but they all, they all swear that they're gay. That's what they have oh. to sign a letter. Right. I'm gay. I'm not, I'm not, into not this. even that into this. Okay. Here's my other complaint. Okay. You know, everyone now in every show brushes their teeth. Who ever saw Clark Gable or Marilyn Monroe brush their teeth in a movie or TV? And that is why the whole thing of stardom in Hollywood, that whole sheen is gone, you know? They were bigger than life. They they didn't, and plus everyone's urinating on screen now. So they're on the toilet, they're brushing their teeth. If I wanted to see that, I could just, you know, turn to my left at home. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> There's no more you know stars and and how come okay. nobody looks at the road when they're driving anymore no. they deliver shakespearean soliloquies <laughs> to the person next to and we're all in the house screaming look at the road <laughs> wow you you really i think these are important issues i need to leave the house don't i, I, I need well to leave the i house. think we're all kind of sneaking out can you tell us how the pandemic has treated you and what sort of epiphanies that you've had a, a chance to germinate while you, you spending time with self. Well, there's a real thing going on now, and I'm so glad I read about it because I was suffering it and I thought it was just me. And it's that I can't leave the house now. Uh oh. I haven't eaten in a restaurant. Okay. I don't go anywhere. I go to the grocery store and I take the dogs to the vet. That's it. I've turned down every invitation with friends. I'm too freaked out. I, I can't. I feel like, wait a minute, I stayed in for a year and two months. If I go out now and get sick, I'll, it will be just the universe saying drop dead. You know, I can't leave the house. And I've been reading that it's actually a thing. We, we have like PTSD. That's why I didn't come over. I mean, hey, I, have you done any right? online performances, Zoom comedy? Nope. Nope. Well, nope. good. You're better off. I, to me, <laughs> it's such a gut wrenching experience. Is uh, it? Uh, yeah, oh, no. Are you suffering right now? Yes. It's, it's, it's. I mean, I, with I, I me mean, here? No, I, I, I get invited to, you know, to, to speak after a fundraiser or whatever it is. Right. And, and, and people don't mute and there are dogs barking oh, and Consuela comes in and asks if she can go home now and people right. talk. They have no, to me, the online performance is like a surgery without anesthesia. It's just the oh, gosh. worst. I, so I'm really sorry my it, dogs barked. I apologize. Oh no. I always think it adds depth. I do too. I like <laughs> seeing where people live. 
I like seeing, I like imagining what's beyond the frame of the but camera. It's always books and flowers. People live in between books and flowers. There is a guy on MSNBC named Andrew Weissman, who was one of the Mueller Report geniuses, and he is in a different room for every Zoom appearance. Oh, that's so cool. And we are that's obsessed. Great. My sister and I take screen caps of it and text them to each other. How great. And he lives in like one of those Manhattan sky rises. Well, is that a word? He lives yeah, in one yeah, of the, a good word. where he's like blown out three or four floors, Elaine. And it's just <laughs> you. What that's is going great. on and all of his electronics and his furniture and it's just so much fabulousness. So, yeah, it's it can get we can once we see people in a studio again, we may be like, oh, ho hum, back to my Tetris, you know? <laughs> No, no. I've been to several Zoom funerals, and that was kind of sad that it had to be like that. But um, I didn't do any performances, and I really don't do podcasts because there are, you know, I don't, I mean, I love you. So I said yes, and here we are. And I wanted to see if I remembered how to put on makeup, and apparently I've remembered how to put on too much makeup. No, no you look really wow, beautiful. You look great. Have you I been to very made up? That's fine. Whatever. Saturday, I went to a Zoom mitzvah. A Zoom mitzvah? Yeah. That's and, great. Well, you have it's on the East Coast, so you have to get up very early. And yeah. but it's like if you had the best seat because the camera is right in front of the they don't call it a podium in Judaism. It's more like a dais or uh, there's I'm it's sure there's probably a wailing wall. <laughs> right. But if you've been to a wedding or anything via Zoom in the past 14 months, it really is like you're oh, I'm very close. You, you start to get nervous. But so it's nice to be able to see things that way and to, you know, mute yourself and burp. You know, I think we're lucky we had it though, even though I didn't do anything myself. I mean, it, it gave people an outlet and, you know, people were getting a little crazy kind of shut down by themselves and they got to see comedians online and, you know, beautiful concerts and stuff. So it probably was a lifesaver for a lot of people just to be able to share stuff. And they do, you know, there's always a rolling side scroll. So you do get to comment and talk back and forth. And that's a nice thing. I mean, it's, I think it's good we had it, even though, you know. Absolutely. You other, you do but. wonder how people got through the 1918 pandemic. Well, when, it's not like they were missing television or their computers. They didn't have it yet. No, none of their so, texts went through. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it was really no scary. sound checks. No. Well, the truth is they didn't get through the 1918 pandemic. There's your answer. Yeah. I mean, didn't that wipe out like half the world? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's put you in history because these things are really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you were, as I said before, this groundbreaking. You're avoiding your story. question, right? You, yeah, you were. You, you, but but that's okay. He's persistent. But, I'm not. But, I'm not a whiner. You know, I. No. I, uh, no I, I, I. I take the high road. For I'm everything. not asking you to whine. I'm just asking you to tell the truth about how hard it was for female comics to get the recognition they deserved. And that 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 fight that you had to get stage time in the main room with all the you know with 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 Robin and Jay and all these other people, uh, people whose talent you were equal to, but uh, didn't weren't perceived that way by the owners of the clubs. It was it was. Okay, so now I feel terrible because I have to contradict your facts a little bit. Okay, and I good. Apologize, Go ahead. But you're you're making me talk. So um, first of all, the, the world, you know, in the the equal. Well, let's see, choice, legal abortion only passed in what, 1972? And I believe it was 1972. And I started comedy in 72, 73. So you can imagine the position women were in in those days. They were chattel, basically. And even in the late 60s, women couldn't get their own credit card. They needed a man or husbands or fathers to co-sign. Mm -hmm. I came up literally when there was no freedom 
for women. And the female comedians there had been were, you know, Joan Rivers, Tony Fields, Phyllis Diller, brilliant, fantastic, wonderful women, but the exact, you know, type that people would accept, you know, housewives who were, you know, complaining. And they were brilliant. I'm not taking anything away. And I'm not saying, you know, I, I get angry when people say, well, they were so self-deprecating. And I say, excuse me, those were the times. Look at the men. Look at Rodney Dangerfield and, exactly. uh, you know, Jackie uh, Vernon. And, and mm -hmm. uh, all those guys were self-deprecating. That was the time. You know, Rodney was the same as Phyllis. So don't put it on the women. It was the times we lived in. Comedy was the hangdog husband, the hangdog wife, complaining about their situation. Mm -hmm. I was the first young, you know, trying to be pretty, dressed up for a date, trying to be sexy, 20 years old, attractive comic. Observational who was smart. comic. Uh, what? An observational, yes, observational comic. And, and also doing the news, doing, you know, looking at life, just the way the young men of the time were. Who were it's your classmates in 73 in New York when so you So my classmates, I was in New York, my, my graduating class, was Richard Lewis, Richard Belzer, a genius named Ed Bluestone. Jay Leno used to drive down from Boston and deliver cars. We all had day jobs because it paid nothing. You were nobody or the biggest star in the world. You were doing this free hobby or you were headlining in Vegas or had a TV show. So Leno came down um, and he would go on and then go back and deliver cars. Richard Lewis worked in advertising. Ed Bluestone's parents supported him. Andy Kaufman lived with me. I was the hostess in the club, so I made a living. Andy lived with me. That was our money. Um, who am I leaving out? Jimmy what club Walker was that? Was that the improv? Sorry? Was that the that improv? That was the New York improv. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people think, oh, this big place. No, it was a little toilet in the wall mm -hmm. in Hell's Kitchen. Nobody came there. And I was terrified it was going to shut down because in the winter there were like three Japanese tourists and that was the whole audience. <laughs> and I had already been fired from every single waitress job in New York City. This was my last chance before I had to move on to the D's. In other words, I got fired from all the A jobs, B's, I hit C, you know, <laughs> wow. yeah, I'm going to get fired and keep going down the alphabet. So what saved the improv about a year in, Rick Newman opened Catch a Rising Star on the east side, mm -hmm. uh, and and it was the, and Bud says, it was the best thing that ever happened to the improv because Rick did so much advertising about a comedy club, which oh. the improv wasn't necessarily. It was jazz, singers, comedy, whatever. It was very experimental. And because of Catch a Rising Star, the improv got an audience. So that's how that, you know, grew. Um, Andy Kaufman, uh, Gabe Kaplan already had his TV show. Jimmy Walker had his TV show. Am I leaving anyone out? Belzer, I said Richard Belzer. Um, and that was the New York crew. And uh, so and you then, came out and here. I was, sorry? So you came out here to Los Angeles. So I started, you know, I was singing there because they always put the waitresses on in between the comics <clears throat> to give the audience a chance to talk. And, uh, you know, wow. we were kind of the grout between the tiles. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> but I got good fast because I was the hostess and, and Bud could rely on me to come in early and, you know, stay eight hours a night. So he started coming in later and later. And in those days, there was no MC or no schedule. If you showed up, you went on. Well, you know, on a snowy Tuesday night in New York City, nobody came to go on. It was me. 
So I would go on for hours and just talk to the audience. And within a year, I had enough material to play, to do anything. But I still wanted to be a singer. And it was the guys in the club. Oh, and Freddie Prince was also the, the big star of our graduating class. Mm -hmm. When he did The Tonight Show, we just couldn't, we gathered around the bar and watched. And in a minute, he had a TV show and became the biggest star in the world. It was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, everything kind of moved out to LA. And so I came out with it, but I had such a nice name from New York that I immediately headlined everywhere in LA. I never had a fight for the comedy store. I never played the belly room once. I thought it was an insult. I headlined the main room for day one. So that was great. But the fight, you know, you have to understand those clubs were really like a good family, not the bad one we all came from, but the good family. So those guys loved me and I love them. And I was like a sister and brother with all of those guys and their families. I had no prejudice in the clubs. The prejudice was to go out to the real world and work. And Rodney Dangerfield, who literally mentored Ed Bluestone and myself for two years, we hung out in the basement of Dangerfields and he gave us steaks to eat every night for dinner because we were so broken. We were so getting so sick on those steaks, like grease coated your throat for your life. And we, Ed said, he loves you. Ask him for $10 so we can go to Chinatown. I said, okay, okay. Rodney, could we have $10 to go to Chinatown? Absolutely not. Why not? <laughs> hey, these steaks cost me nothing. If I give you 10 bucks, that's 10 bucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wow. He was the best. Want to hear a great Dangerfield story? Yeah. Yes. I got hired to write on his first TV show out here. Um, and it, the, here's who the writers were. Get ready for this. This is how early it was. Me, Harold Ramis, and wow. Stanley Myron Handelman. Wow. You know, three stars in their own. We wrote the Rodney Dangerfield first special, which won all the Emmys called It Ain't Easy Being Me. So we wrote together for 12 weeks. And on the 13th week, Rodney came out from New York to, you know, tweak everything and blah, blah, blah. So they rent him a house in Malibu. Now I'm brand new. I don't have a penny to my name. They drive us out to Malibu to, you know, meet with him. We had been friends, so that's cool. But I'd never seen Malibu. We walk into this house. It was millions, total glass all glass, there's the ocean, it's coming right up to the glass, there's Rodney sitting on a couch facing it with his bathrobe hanging open, with his belly resting on the coffee table, and he's eating a bowl of cereal and the milk splashing all over his belly on the coffee table, and I walk in and see this magnificent beach, and then this juxtaposition of Rodney sitting there like that, and I say, Oh my goodness, Rodney, this house must be costing you a fortune. And without looking up, eating the cereal, he says, you kidding? 18 cents a wave. <laughs> wow. So did you see I'm Dying Up Here, the Showtime series? I did. I don't like to badmouth people's no, projects. I, no, um, I, I, I'm, I don't want you to badmouth it. I just want to know uh, how close. I, I, I can't remember the actress's name, but the woman that had the arc that was the blonde girl that was uh, alleged to have represented your history at the comedy store, which yeah. was this fight to be able to get stage time equal to the men. That's why I brought it up. To well, that never happened to me. Because, uh, like I said, in New York, they just desperately needed me because the guys wouldn't show up half the time because yeah. there was no fixed schedule. Mm -hmm. So bad weather, Tuesday night, midnight, there's people in the club, there's no comics, 
you know, I was thrown up. Admittedly, when all the comics were there, I did have to fight. But I understand that. They should be on before me, those guys. You know, they were much more oiled and ready and blah, blah, blah. You always have to fight. Guys had to fight, too, to get their stage time. But, you know, I was very lucky in the sense that when I came out here, I was already established as, you know, a, a good comic. So I, I got put on immediately. The belly room, I just, I thought was... Here's my thing, okay? I don't, I never called myself a female comic, just like Bill Cosby never called himself a black comic. You know, uh, the point is you wanna play to everybody. And when you define yourself, the more labels you put on yourself, the fewer people come out to see you. If I, you know, they started doing Newsweek articles about the female comics and Time Magazine articles, the female comics. I refused to participate. Jay Leno gave my interview to Time and Richard Lewis gave my interview to Newsweek. I, I refused to pigeonhole myself because I knew how the work would go. And the work was like this. Uh, Microsoft needs a comic for their convention or Apple or, you know, uh, Chase Bank. So who do they think of? They go, okay, who can we afford and who can we get? Okay, Jen Leno, he's busy. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, we can't afford. Who's next? Elaine Boozler. Oh yeah, she's great and we can afford her. They never th said, oh, but it's a woman and she's not going to play to our people. I, my fans have always been 50-50 because if I said anything about men, I then did the women's side of it. You know, men do this, but women do this. I wanted to entertain everybody. And so I, I refused to be pigeonholed. I love women comics. And if you wanted to find yourself like that, that's great. It's fine, whoever you want to be. But I really thought if they put me in that corner, I'd never get out of that corner, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why I just didn't. There's a show on now. It's, it's all about how hard it is to be a female comic. And it's all these women kind of complaining. And my take on it is, well, go dig ditches or live in Syria and try and get firewood for your kids' <laughs> boiled water for dinner without getting raped in the jungle. You know, yeah. you pick the hardest uh, business and the easiest thing if you make it. I yeah, mean, you're no still, one told you to do this. You're still going to have to shave your pits. You still have to shave your pits, especially if the zombies are coming. So I, you, you I, weren't part of that. <laughs> that that um, You had already achieved a certain amount of success uh when that sorority i use the term sorority just as a way to define this large group of women who came through the same experience at the same time you know diane nichols and lotus Weinstock. Well, Diane was with me and yeah. you know but she was i think she's one of the funniest people i've ever known and she i saw her at the comedy and magic club in hermosa beach right before the pandemic totally new act i was on the floor i just said i hate you i want that act <laughs> you know she's yeah. so brilliant uh, look, uh, there were other women along with me. The reason you know me and not them, they did fall by the wayside. It was very hard. And you really had to be more tough than you wanted to be. And you had to decide that you would burn it down. You could, you had to be willing to risk everything. And yes, the sexism was disgusting once I started to get into the real world and try and work. But remember this, as few female comedians as they were, basically me, they were that few Female doctors, female lawyers, females mm -hmm. in politics, women in Congress, you know, women in uh, hardware stores, all the things we get to do now, the whole world was still closed to us. So it wasn't just comedy, mm -hmm. directing, producing, writing, you know, there weren't women outside of the home, basically in the world. So I was yeah. just on the wave of women waking up and seeing what was possible. Yeah, it was, it was basically nurse, teacher, mom. Yeah. And exactly. there's a book that I want to recommend called Girls Like Us. And it's a it's about Carly Simon, Carol King and Joni Mitchell. Oh, how great. And those were the women that sort of women our age watched and went, oh, 
you you don't have to get married. You, you I mean, you can, sure, but there those were kind of like the women that that in a high profile way did something different. Well, and, my two superheroes were Janis Joplin and Lauren Nero. Wow. My Brooklyn yeah. crushes who I loved and wanted to be and still want to be. And the women you named, absolutely. You could throw Judy Collins in there mm -hmm. and Grace Slick. And, sure, sure, you know. sure. And it was hard for them too. Yeah, it was. Listen, you know, every, I got slapped in the face a billion times. You never hear me complain about it. You've got to get around it. You know, my motto, never complain, never explain. It. And this was so funny. I guess the show about the women lamenting how hard stand-up is for women was on last week. And a guy on Twitter writes to me on Twitter and he says, wow, Elaine, I never knew how hard it was to be a female comic. And I answered, neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but so I have a question for you, Elaine. Sure. And this is something that I think you're quite proud of. You are a frequent crossword puzzle answer. Who are your favorite fellow celebrity puzzle answers? Well, I can tell you who's in the crossword every single day. You have the band ELO, right. because that word is just so usable. Mm -hmm. So they're in it constantly. The British gun Sten, S-T-E-N, will be in the crossword every day. Um, uh, I think they use me because Elaine has a Y in it and right. that they get to trip people up because they're putting the I down, not knowing, and then they can't get the down and the across. Um, and they, they celebrated the anniversary of the New York Times crossword. So they asked celebrities to team up with constructors and do the crosswords each one a, a, a month for a year. They had Bill Clinton and I mean, really fun people. And I got to write a crossword. Wow! And so it was really a fun and funny one. And now I'm, I'm constructing them and it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's always fun to be in it. But people say, oh my God, you're in the course crossword. You made it. And I say, no, 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 no. It's just 46 down funny boozler. I say, I'll know I've made it when 46 down says, hey, C18 across. <laughs> <laughs> then you're somebody. That's you know? awesome. <laughs> but if you want to hear about, you know, I know you're interested in also that, you know, how hard it was. Here's a good one. So I'm in, in the air doing a million dates. I didn't even live anywhere for the first 10 years. I was on the road 52 weeks a year, no exaggeration. I just had my suitcase. That was it. Um, so they're doing hoops. Uh, comic relief. We were doing comic relief in the 80s and they take the Superdome in New Orleans and that game, the money's going to comic relief. Okay. So some good comedian, known comedian has to pick up the check at the game and it's televised and it's a big deal. Well, the weather, what you'll like this freaks. <laughs> the weather was, you couldn't fly anywhere. It was a disaster. And it was supposed to be Paul Rodriguez and he couldn't get to the Superdome in New Orleans. So Chris Albrecht from HBO tracked me down on the road. He said, you're closer, right? Can you get to the Superdome? And I said, I'll do it. And I found like three different planes and I get to the Superdome and I get there and they go, hey, it's, we got Elaine Boozer, it's gonna work out. They turn to me in New Orleans and they go, we ain't giving you the check, no women in the booth. What? And I said, hey, let me in, I'm not that feminine. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and they said, no women in the booth. Oh my gosh. And I said, listen, man, this is about helping the homeless. Forget that stuff. This is about helping the homeless. HBO put a lot of money into this for you. You know, don't do this. And they said, you ain't coming in the booth. No women in the booth. Well, guess who was there broadcasting right next to it and heard this? Ron Swoboda. 
one of the greatest baseball players and one of the most famous moments in baseball. And he moved me out of the way and said, do you know who you people are talking to? Do you know who she, I mean, for every bad moment, there was a champion who got it. Mm. And that's what you had to go with. Mm -hmm. You had to go with the positive and forget all that stuff. But I mean, that happened a billion times and you just go, what? That's the way it was. Along those same lines, mm -hmm. it was impossible at a time for network executives, cable executives, to be oh. convinced that a female could do a special. Uh. So that was frustrating. Business. And you had to finance your own at first. Correct? You know what it sounds like? Oh, she took her American Express and did a special. No, I was young. I had I was in an apartment that was $265 a month, uh, which means, you know, <laughs> there was no money. And for years, cable started up and all the guys got specials. And I was touring then. I was doing a two and a half hour show in those days. And all those guys who had specials, I'd follow them into the clubs and the club owners would say to me, oh, thank God we're going to make our money back this week. <laughs> I had been selling out for years, selling out the clubs, you know, three shows a night, you know, two and a half hour show, the greatest reviews you could ever see. I still have them up on, you know, my website mm -hmm. just to show what the history was. And HBO and Showtime said, no, 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 no. No one wants to see a woman do an hour. Oh and I said, you know, in every city in this country, people pay a lot of money to see me do two and a half hours every night. You're wrong. They wouldn't put me on. They wouldn't put me on. Long story short, I met a guy. He said, I can help you do this, but you'll have to learn how to produce because we can't hire a lot of people. How much money do you have? I said, zero. He said, okay. He was a very well-established New York filmmaker. We started to live together. He said, I mean, he wasn't known. He just, you know, had chops. And uh, he got all his friends in New York to shoot us for nothing, to do the scenery, to do the sound, because we promised them when we sold it, they would get paid full fee. Mm -hmm. And they said, Elaine Boozler, and I was really known in New York because that was my you know, impetus. They said, Elaine Boozler, oh, you'll sell it. Yeah, we'll take our full fee in a couple of months. So we had, was party of one, which ran for 15 years everywhere and bought me two houses. Wow. But wow. yeah, party of one. And, and my boyfriend said to me, look, you have to get celebrities to, uh, we're going to do an opening piece. People hadn't done opening pieces yet. He said, we'll do an opening piece because they clearly don't want you. But if you give them people they can't get on cable yet, they'll have to buy the show. So that was the week Bill Cosby's show became number one and brought NBC back from the brink of nothingness. He was on the cover of Time that week. I asked him because I knew he knew my work. And he said, yes, Letterman had just become number one. He had never stepped outside his show. He said, yes, it was Dr. Ruth's first big year, Westheimer. She said, yes, Tom Waits, my old friend, gave me his music. It was one of the most beautiful shows ever done. And 12 years of honing these jokes. It was each one was a diamond on velvet in a store. <laughs> I finished the show. We get it edited. You know, we're, I take it up to HBO and Showtime. They say, no, no. No one wants to see a woman do an hour. I said, you're turning down these stars. I don't understand that thinking. I mean, where, where did that come from? So I, have, I have some theories about it. And old school guys, guys who hated their Jewish mothers, yeah. guys who couldn't get laid without paying for it. <laughs> right, right, right. Hated women. Yeah, they so, were a horrible group of people. So I and, think my theory, Elaine, is that men who are comfortable and confident are ready, happy, and willing to appreciate a, a funny female. Men who or are any 
any female or any female who's following her dream. Exactly. A doctor, a lawyer. I mean, you you know, one of the greatest books I've read recently was the Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg biography. It's it's thicker than the encyclopedia (laughs) and so worth reading. And her husband. Oh, my goodness. He's the guy every woman wants, you know, did everything to support her. Because you of know, your life. And he had his own career, but he just got her brilliance. And that's what you, you want someone who sees you when you see them. That's but it's all. it's it's not Simple. just that it's threatening to insecure men. It's also a, a male comedian explained this to me from my days as an, uh, a very poor open micer. But very he, curious. What did he say? He said that women are always telling you what they're thinking and feeling anyway. And what's unique about men doing stand-up comedy is that you finally get to hear what men are thinking and feeling. And we all have to listen to women all day. Why would I want to sit in an audience and watch one do that on stage? Man, I call bullshit. Yeah. Uh, I think it has to do with power. I think the whole thing is power. And I know you've seen it, Elaine, as a female comic, that the, the... the little microcosm that goes on in an audience, especially if if the man, if it's a couple and the man is not a fan of yours yet, how hard you often have to work for him to give it up and to acquiesce and say, this woman is funny and to relax and laugh. The woman's laughing a long time. There's a certain power. The woman with a microphone on stage has power and men, even if it's subconsciously, are not willing to give up the power position to a woman who has the power with the jokes and the personality on stage it's about and power yet, you know what's funny i agree we all agree. grew up with female grade school teachers sure and yeah. we looked at them all day controlling long 45 wild lunatics yeah. Yeah. every day for eight years and then yeah. the, and so how- the other dynamic that elaine you can tell me whether or not you agree with this one is like let's say there's a couple there the man is gonna picture himself having sex with you because that's just what men do when they look at a woman for longer than a few seconds. Well, I and hope so, so if he's with <laughs> if he's with a date and he laughs at you, then she wants to know later in the car, did you think she was pretty? Did you find her attractive? So it's this whole it's all these layers that we have to Okay, you people are overthinking all of this. Am I? Am Honestly. I? Okay. Here's what I say, okay? Yeah. Anyone walks on the stage, a man, a woman, a gorilla, a parrot, anybody, (laughs) you have 30 seconds to be funny. Mm -hmm. If you're funny, you're off and running. All that stuff's out the window. If you're not funny, it doesn't matter who you were. If you're funny, no one's going to say, wow, she was so funny. Too bad it was a woman. And if you're not funny, they're not going to say, man, he wasn't funny, but at least it was a guy. My, I sum it up like this. Mm -hmm. Whoever can carry you out of the burning building gets to be the fireman. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's it. That's you know, so they didn't perfect. want women fire people. Hey, buddy, you're, you're going to burn up in there. I don't want a woman carrying me down that <laughs> ladder. Okay, I'll tell your family you said goodbye. You have a job to do. Do your fucking job. <laughs> and that's the end of it. And cut all this crap is just getting in your way. It's bullshit. Do your job. Be funny. Nothing. You're doing the audience's job for them. Don't think of what not what people think of me is none of my business. It's I don't interesting. care what you think of me. It's interesting. I'm doing what, my job. I'm enter. I want you to feel better than when you came in. That's the end of the story. Everything else, that's it. Because what you're saying, Elaine, is it cuts to a very primal nature that that the instinct to laugh 
there's no explaining it. You're just either going to laugh or you're not. It's completely primal. It, it comes out you of you. You have no choice. Yes. If you're funny, I'm telling you, my audience has literally always been 50-50, always. And, you know, it's funny. Someone came to do an article on me years ago, and this was very interesting. Uh, she watched the show. It was down again in the club we love. For it's uh, Hermosa Beach mm-hmm. Comedy and Magic Club. Mm-hmm. We love that place. And uh, so afterwards, she comes backstage and she says this. She said... Uh, And she had seen the whole show. So she saw three male comedians and then me headlining, right? Mm -hmm. And she says this to me. She says, well, I watched the whole show and I noticed that the women were laughing a little harder at you than the men were. And I said, oh, did the men laugh harder at the men than the women were? And she said, oh, I I don't know. I didn't look for that. I said, yeah, so fuck you. (laughs) That's pretty much it. Everyone's looking for trouble. I do my job. I don't care what you're thinking, what you're expecting. I have a mission statement and this is what I live for. And I'm doing this 48 years. And my mission statement is I want you to leave feeling better than when you came in. Mm. I think the world is so hard for everyone. If you took the time, I know people came home from work Friday and said, oh no, we have tickets for this. I'm too tired. I don't want to go. But we paid, take the shower, get dressed, find a parking space. They come in, you can heckle me. I'll play with you. I don't, I want people to be so happy they came and they want, I just want that thing afterwards, them go, oh, oh, thank you. Because they feel good. It's a hard world out there. Mm-hmm. And I just want them to leave happy. I'm not there for anything but that. And I think people like uh, certain comedians who came out of a bad childhood, every time I have a show where people come up and they're crying, they laugh so hard, I'm healing myself every time again. Aww. You know, I fixed mm-hmm. it again. Hey, that's why I do animal rescue. Every terrified little creature who's helpless and is afraid someone's going to come down and squash him. Every time I save another one, I just fix my childhood again. Oh, you know, I, I mean, that's you have what the healthiest do. outlook about that whole thing that I've ever heard. But I the will what? say I'm this. Sorry, I didn't hear you, what have you, have said. A, you have the healthiest outlook oh, about shit. the whole performance dynamic that I've ever heard. But I will also say this, and you'll agree with this. Hey, Maybe, they're leaving again. No, no, he's not, just not, working on the camera. Right. He's going out to get a snack. <laughs> um, uh, and I've seen this not with you, but with other females. I've talked to Diane Nichols about this. There is, and maybe the world is changing now, but I have seen comedians uh, of moderate skill, male comedians go up on the stage, and then a female comedian comes up, and the energy level just goes down one or two notches, as if to say the female comic has just a couple of beats of proof they have to go through before they have earned the respect of the audience. It's not sometimes it's not perceptible, but I've seen it happen where a little energy I goes down, you. and then they then they uh, go forward, and it's it, it, it's hard work. So uh, well, I, I I, women you. have to be prepared to bring it. I've seen women have to work, you know, harder than I go. Maybe so. And you get my philosophy is, you know, uh, and and it's true. How do you make it? You have to be so good Good. that that you are undeniable. That's what Steve Martin said. You have to be so good that they can't ignore you. Son of a gun. He's such a thief. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) And and confident and confident because Mm -hmm. it just takes a certain amount of knowledge that you know what you're doing. I'm in charge. I have the microphone. I'm the funny one. That's why I'm up here. And I'm going to go ahead and do my act. And I'm not 
saying there isn't a total prejudice. I totally agree with you. I'm saying I refuse to acknowledge it or dwell on it, or I would have been stopped. No, that would have that would have kept ago. you from going no, on stage. Exactly. Like Maria Bamford, oh, her gosh. level of genius, yeah. or Eliza Schlesinger, her yeah. level of genius. She should be in the Dave Chappelle, Jerry Seinfeld sphere. Mm -hmm. They should be getting a hundred million dollars from Netflix. Yeah. They should be on Lear jets and selling out stadiums. That's how unbelievably brilliant they are. Mm -hmm. I There are so many mediocre male comics now bringing home millions yes. and so many undeniably brilliant female comics now in the middle tier. And it is, yes, completely unfair. But what can you do about it? You don't talk about it. You get out there and you just keep pushing. Mm -hmm. And you have to. If I didn't do that special, you know, I did that special, okay? There hadn't been a woman do an hour. None in all those years. I do the hour. I found, oh, so here's how it's sold. You have to know that part. Um, my boyfriend looks at me and I said, I told you they hated me. He said, I always thought you were crazy taking it personally. But you're right. If they turned down Cosby and Letterman and Dr. Ruth, they hate you. What do you want to do? I said, well, everybody worked for free. I want to pay everyone. I'm going to do the round one more time this year, go back in the same level. I want to pay everybody off and we're out of here. He said, okay, I'll teach filmmaking in San Francisco or New York or something. Okay. About 10 months goes by. I have the, the Duddy Kravitz bar mitzvah film on my, boy, that's <laughs> dated. that dates me on my living room shelf in a very expensive home movie. And what happens? He calls me up from lunch. He said, hey, there are all new guys at Showtime. And mm -hmm. I always said, one day, hipper, younger guys will come in. Yeah. And they'll be like us, the new generation of women are fine. So they came in, Peter Chernin, as a matter of fact, and Alan Sabinson. He took that up there. It sold in minus two seconds. They gave me a multi-million dollar deal for four more. Wow. And I went from nothing to everything. Oh my and here's the best part. The New York Times reviewed it the night it, you know, played on Showtime for the first time. And it was the review you would have written yourself, all you were trying to say to them, which was the writer said, where has this been? Aww. A normal woman standing on stage, not flaying herself for our amusement. That's wow. all you need right there. Wow. Where did you, you know record that A month later, HBO yeah. created Women of the Night mm -hmm. and gave every woman in the world a TV show. It was four women every Friday night. Each one got 15 minutes for the hour, but they had to name it Women of the Night. It still had to be hookers because they could <laughs> just win, right? Right, right. right? Where did you record that first special? Uh, well, I put the, uh, on the, on the, I have a box set out, which is really great. It's four amazing specials mm -hmm. and a brand new CD of new material called the 5050 club. But the first one I like to say was done at the shoes and socks lounge in downtown Tomataville, <laughs> which was a, a Tom Waits line, but it was the bottom line in New York, bottom mm -hmm. line in New York. I miss that club boy. And that, that club, there were two guys, there you go. You find a couple of champions and you get your career. Two guys who owned the bottom line in New York in the seventies. They loved me. Now, the biggest stars in the world played there, Dolly Parton and Tom Waits and Kenny Rankin. Alan made every single one of them let me open for them. You know, it was 50 bucks, but I opened for every one of those stars. Half of them took me on the road after that, yeah. after fighting him tooth and nail. We don't want her. We don't know who she is. We don't want some women comic on stage. No. Every night I went and opened for somebody and they all took me on the road. That's how, you know, it was good. So those two guys really the bottom line in New York, Alan and Stanley just helped with the career. And, and you didn't know they, no one ever opened a magazine or a newspaper and saw me crying. You know, I mean, Oh, it's so hard. No, it's nobody's business. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sure is hard. Nobody's business. Do your I, job. I don't, I don't know what the percentage is, but, but I also, uh, you, you know, 
you developed a confidence over your almost 50 years, but I, I've often said that 50% of your ability to make people like you on stage is your personality. It's the stage business. It's your confidence. It's how you conduct yourself. And as an example, not that you're in any way, you're, you're such a skilled comedian, but I, I look at Arsenio Hall and I try to figure out what it was about him that made him so popular. And I would say that over 50% of it was just his personality. It was his, it was his confidence on stage. It was this big smile. And yes, his jokes were funny. Uh, but, but it, that really wasn't the important part. You know what I mean? It just, he had this charisma. Yes, it was a likability and a charisma. And a genuine appreciation for... Yes. For, genuine, yeah. not fawning, but genuine. No. Do you know, he had me on a hundred times. I did that show a hundred times. Wow. And then I go out and play theaters, and half the theater was black people, and the owner would say, we never had this many black people in here before. I go, isn't that nice that people are discovering your venue? Now you should book more apps that appeal to everyone. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, it was great for years. I'd go on stage and walk out and hear, whoa, whoa, because Arsenio opened up <laughs> a whole part of the world world to me that yeah. no one else had opened up. Yeah. But you know, here's the thing. You can't fake likability. I'm telling you, there yeah. are comedians that are so successful, the top of the field in America. People don't like them. They go to see them. They think they're funny. They don't like them. And I hear this all, hey, we saw so-and-so. Yeah, he's probably not really a nice guy. Is he? No, he's <laughs> no. not. But they laugh and they like them, but they they know. They love you or they don't. No, I, I, I think that's such, that, that might be over 50% of someone's appeal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Now, but they're not going to wanna... laugh just because they like you. I mean, I remember I said to, you know, Tom, Tom uh, Ed Bluestone, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, he, I keep mentioning him. He was from my day and he was a brilliant writer and comedian. And uh, I said one day to him, I said, so-and-so is such a nice guy. And he said, he has to be. He has no act. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, that's yeah. the other way to look There's at it. There's a lot of that, too. Yeah. But, you so, know, it's not going to get you through alone. And if you're a meanie, no. if the act's great, you'll work. But 40 you know, minutes you, in, I, your smile's not going to do it. Yeah. You well, know, I, it's, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Louise. Oh, sorry. I want to, if you have something more to share, please do. But I want to, before we wrap things up, I want to talk about your love, Tales of Joy. Thank you. That is what I was going to say. Um, it's our 20th uh, anniversary of Animal Rescue. We're at Tales, T-A-I-L-S, talesofjoy.net. Um, we're not hands-on. We, in my travels over 48 years, I visited a million rescues and most of them are small mom and well really mom and mom men don't do as much rescue as women but um just these tiny little places all across the country that they put their own money in to save animals because we kill three to five million dogs and cats a year that are adoptable there's just too many and and they get killed in the pounds and so i decided i'm going to help all the little rescue organizations all the local ones that don't have the infrastructure to raise their own money so we give out you know tens if not hundreds of thousands a year um tw over 20 years i don't know how much money and we help the smallest neediest rescue groups and it's not just dogs and cats you do no, like praying mantises any, I mean, anything that needs rescuing sheldrick wildlife for fighting poachers in india and kenya and africa and you know so cats good. in israel and a lot of dogs there's a great organization that bring in 
all the injured dogs from Lebanon to Canada. There's, I've never seen a dog with four legs come in in the last five years. Wow. You know, it's a horrible life. And we, we pay for the vets. We pay for the flights. We pay for the pull fees. We buy the food. You know, we'll have an organization say, oh, my God, our, our donations are off and we don't have food for 50 dogs in our kennels this month. And we'll send, you know, go to Amazon or Chewy and, you know, Walmart and send, uh, you know, six months worth of food. This pandemic was amazing. We put up, well, we put up, if you can feed your animals, don't give them up. We'll take care of you. And oh, I spent wow. six months sitting at that kitchen table sending thousands of pounds of food and medicine across this country to every state, every state, every day, just, I'd say, send me a picture. I'd see the pit bulls. I'd see the cats. This lady writes to me from the middle of the country and she says, we love our rabbit, but I'm going to have to sell her. And I don't want to sell her around here because I know around here they're going to eat her. And I write back, don't eat the bunny, don't eat the bunny. <laughs> and I send so much food and bunny stuff that she writes back to me and says, my daughter was here when the packages came. She couldn't believe it. She said to me, mom, that lady must really like rabbits. <laughs> and I said, no, I just don't want you to eat the bunny. And I said, you have to send me a picture every month with that bunny on today's paper. I want to make sure that bunny doesn't get <laughs> but we did we kept people's pets in their homes for the pandemic vet wow. visits food medicine nail cuttings we called the vets spay neuter we took care individuals which you don't usually do that much and kept people happy and you know we and we would send six months worth of food because you got to take the pressure off it's not yeah i had not thought of how this was affecting pet owners and I always say keeping a pet in a home is as good as putting a pet in a home. So mm -hmm. if, if you have your listeners, I'd like to say Amazon has a charity and you can pick a charity you like. And every time you shop, they give us a piece of your shopping at no cost to you. So if you start and bookmark it, smile.amazon.com, smile.amazon.com, you start there every time you shop. All you have to do is choose us once. Tales of Joy Studio City, because there are other Tales of Joys. Okay. Tales of Joy Studio City, bookmark, smiled at Amazon.com. Every time you shop, they give us a piece. We don't know what you bought. It's totally private. And uh, it's it helps a lot. I mean, we every quarter we get a few extra dollars from that. And, and if you live in LA, you can sign up a, as we can be your charity at Ralph's supermarkets. Oh, we get wow. even more from Ralph's than we get from Amazon. You just link your Ralph's card to Tales of Joy and, and you'll see it at the bottom of your receipt. Every time you shop, they give us a piece of your shopping. Unfortunately, not liquor or we'd be rich, but sure. <laughs> groceries. Sure. So and when do you picture and, and how do you picture yourself being comfortable enough to get back on stage? Oh, I don't know. I, I really am at a loss. I wish I could be funny and entertaining about it, but I just don't see myself leaving the house yet. Mm -hmm. I, I just, it's such a freak out, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. We, I made a date, a breakfast date with good friends. And a half an hour before I said, I'm not coming. And mm -hmm. my husband went, but I didn't go. I couldn't go. So I don't know. It's really PTSD, I think. Right, right. And I bet you're, you know, you are among many. So... I'm they just... say it's a thing. I think my husband's going to start putting pizzas at the end of the driveway, okay. like a little further away <laughs> sure. every day, yeah. then down the street, then on the corner. That may help. Mm. I don't know. I think that would help. Yeah. I hope so. Boy, it was so great to see you, Fritz. Well, I miss you every you. night. And it was so great to meet you, Louise. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. You're pleasure a delight. And I'm, I'm so appreciative. You're really humble you know, and positive thing. about your start. But you represented... Um, I think the 
the the breaks i'm again i have to divide in male and female just because that's what we're talking about here the breakthrough lady comic at the beginning of that tsunami that happened in the mid 70s through the 80s until it tapered off in the 90s you were the person and you are funny and personable and uh i'm so glad we had a chance to talk with you Thank thanks you. for coming on it was the special opening the door for those that other series because they saw that people did indeed want to see women yes and here's the simplest summation of it in one sentence mm -hmm. i was playing san francisco in the 70s no one had really seen much women comedians i did a whole show there was a very very old man with his wife in the audience i made a joke about women working he yelled out no i said what? No, he said, women shouldn't work. Here's how simple it was. I said, well, who would you have come to see tonight? <laughs> ah, That's perfect. all it is. Here perfect. we are. Don't freak out. <laughs> all right. Here come our closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank our guest, Elaine Boosler. We've got her social medias right here, and you can also find them in our show notes. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Fr Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, and you, our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the Media Path. And Fritz has more to tell you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may even find us binge-worthy. Recent episodes include uh, great musical memories with Gary Puckett and the Cowsills and all kinds of wonderful people, Keith Morrison and uh, all kinds of Josh Mankiewicz. Going back to the very beginning, you'll hear Henry Winkler and other great stars. Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Stay safe.